How big is the difference between the private and public engineering sectors? We're about to find out. Like in the private sector, it can, it can almost feel aggressive the way you're trying to approach your job. You're trying to get gain as much experience as quickly as possible to kind of, I suppose, establish yourself, make people know who you are. It's more transparent in the public sector. We can talk about the grades we're at, the wages we're at, and the steps of where we are at our particular grade. Hello there, my name is Dusty Rhodes and you're welcome to Amplified, the Engineers Journal podcast. Today we're taking a look at engineering in the public sector and hearing some brilliant stories from three professionals with extensive experience in the area. Joining us are the head of the National Building Control and Market Surveillance Office in Dublin and a fellow with Engineers Ireland, Mairead Phelan. Mairead, how are you? Thank you for having me. Executive Engineer with Limerick City and County Council, Fergal Timlin is also joining us. How are you doing, Fergal? I'm good, Dusty. How are you? And Senior Executive Engineer with Louth County Council, Claire Hughes is with us as well. Thanks for joining us, Claire. Good morning, Dusty. Claire, can I start off with you by asking, how does engineering work differ in the public sector? Well, the pressure is on you in the public sector in terms of you are answerable to everybody in uh, the general public. Um, everything that you do in your work uh, is under scrutiny. Uh, you have to obviously get permission for to do uh, standard roadwork schemes or if you're going to build houses, you have to go and get um, go through public consultation and make sure that everybody is okay with everything that you're planning and proposing to do. Um, so I feel you're very much so more answerable when you're in the public sector because it is the public purse and it's public spending money. So you have to make sure that you're doing it correctly and obviously doing it to the right specifications and standards as well. So you're definitely under more scrutiny in the public end of it. And the private end of it as well, it's a different kind of pressure that's on you when you're working in the private sector. Again, you, you have to produce, you're under much more demands. And again, it's a different kind of scrutiny then as well. Like, you know, you're not going to obviously produce something that's not workable or not functional. So it is a different kind of pressure, but it's still pressure all the same in both ends of it. And you're answering to the public all the time, of course, that everybody has an opinion. And when you're absolutely. dealing with something that large, yeah, absolutely. Mairead, can I ask you your point of view on public sector work? Because it is contributing positively to communities. Do you think that that adds kind of a level of fulfilment to your job or job satisfaction? Well, uh, Dusty, I started off in Nicholas O'Dwyer's and Partners building large water and sewage works, and which was, you know, quite intensive work, design, oversight and huge monies. And then I went into the local authorities in Carlow County Council and my work was as an area engineer. And for 10 years, I worked as an area engineer and I also uh, worked as a conservation officer. So the work in the local authority was actually wonderful and fulfilling in that as an area engineer, I had over half of the county. I had all of the responsibility for the roads, the water services, the sewerage works, the town renewal, the urban renewal. So I was the 140, the roadmen, the uh, lollipop ladies, the school, uh, the school traffic systems. And I was social worker. I was area engineer. I was the designer, surface dressing, the local town engineer to the town councils when they were there, the local area engineer to the uh, to the municipal authorities. And as such, I had a very good autonomy. I was able to do a lot of urban design schemes, urban renewal schemes. So as part of my roadworks schemes and my large the water and storage maintenance and operation, I was also able to improve 
the towns, the small towns and the small villages that were in my area. And even today, over 25 years later, they invite me back to little openings for uh, their community development works and everything. And I can see where I improved the signage, the parks, the town parks that I designed, putting in something simple like a basketball arena as part of my roadworks. And they work in the local authority. You can do as much as you want to and give as much, or you can just do the, the basic roads and water services and everything. So I found it very, very rewarding, that piece of my early life in local authorities. Fergal, we were chatting just before we came on about kind of public versus private. And I was saying that I did 15 years public service work with RTE. And my experience there is that it can take longer to go from having an idea to something actually happening because of so many levels to go through. Now, that's broadcasting. Is this the same with public service engineering as well? Uh, <laughs> depends on the scale of the project. <laughs> um, like uh, I, when I was with Punch Consulting, we worked on a mixed-use development up in Galway. No, I won't give details, but it was worth about a quarter billion. And um, at the end of the day, like the, the, it, this is a project that started back before the last recession, got put to ground. Then there was a whole load of investigation works in terms of looking at the structure of the pre-existing building itself, making sure it was actually usable. And, and then we have the whole issue with like going through planning and uh, on board from all appeals and actually getting that over the line. So like realistically, even from the private side of things, like when it comes to like planning and we said preliminary design and everything else, it can take up to three or four years to actually get the planning secured to actually construct something. The public sector is exactly the same. We we go through the same same process involved, like the same, I suppose, transparency when it comes to members of the public. The difference for us is that I suppose we are looking at the fact that we can do improvements not just within a specific project. We're not we're not squared off like a client who's basically trying to I want to achieve X by doing this. And it's completely focused in on himself. Whereas the public, we're basically saying, look, while I'm doing this, I need to look into the boundary walls. I need to look into the pre-existing surface water and fall drainage. I need to look into the water mains, the air, air airlines. I basically need to look into what we can do. If I'm going in through the middle of a town and I'm tearing it up, I get one clean opportunity to talk with everyone and say, like, let's bring it all in in terms of parks, environment and everything else so that we actually end up with something that people people have to live with for the next 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So you want them to be happy and proud of the placemaking we've done with them in this particular example. And I ask you all about public service work because it's very clear from what you are saying is that, you know, the public is a much bigger boss to deal with and you've got to think a lot wider than you would on, say, a singular private project. But projects in the public realm can often disrupt public life and make the general public kind of cranky. Do you feel that there was a little bit more understanding for what it is that you're trying to achieve? One project I, I worked on in Tullamore was the construction of footbridges over the Grand Canal in Tullamore and the construction of a boardwalk. And it was a very interesting project and it was a fantastic idea for the town of Tullamore. It was going to give access for different parts of the town directly into the town centre. Everything was fantastic in theory. And when it came to actual construction on site, the number of complaints, we actually had to stop the work at one stage because of 
the number of complaints that were coming in and coming in through elected representatives, I suppose at the time, the, the, the best way was we opened the doors in the town hall and we had everything. We'd already done our part eight and our public consultation prior to this. But when it came to actually being on the ground and the disruption to people's lives, I think the message kind of was lost in translation. So we opened the doors in the town hall and we'd invited people to come in and we met with different groups and explained this is this phase of work. This street would be closed off for this. This traffic management would be put in place for this. But let's look at the bigger picture here. Let's look at what the finished product is going to be. So that that, that project finished, let's say, 10 years ago. And now I was recently in the town there about a month or two ago and the number of people that use those bridges and they're fully accessible to everybody. It cuts off a massive amount of time for people travelling into the town centre on foot, which is what we all want to do. We want to get people out on their feet, out walking into town and it's all about active travel now. So it's getting people and bringing the public along with you to see the bigger picture. Yes, there there is disruption to your lives at the moment. There is delays, there's road closures, there is what there is. But uh, looking at the bigger picture and what will actually be there at the end of a project, getting people to see that then as well is is is, is just as important. Uh, you've also worked on on a load of other uh, projects, Claire. There, there was a, a wastewater project you worked on in Burr. I don't know if you want to talk about that, or maybe one of the the housing schemes that that you've worked on. Which which would be your favourite? Yeah, uh, like Mairead, I suppose I cut my teeth on the water and wastewater end of things and working in county councils. But I suppose one time that I look back at was the two years that I spent in Meath County Council in the housing uh, construction team that was there. So I was there from... I think January 2021 to uh, just earlier on this year and an extremely busy department. Everybody knows what the story is with housing at the moment. The pressure that is on every county council to deliver new housing units in whatever manner that they are going to deliver them, whether it's through direct construction, purchasing, um, through approved housing bodies, etc. So the two years that I worked there, they were the busiest two years of my work in life. But I look back on it with such pleasure and happiness because I grew as an engineer. Um, I got to see direct effects from what I was doing in my day-to-day work. I got to see people actually moving into houses and giving people keys to their houses. And I suppose that was that's one end of things that you get in the public sector and particularly in local authorities. You actually get to see the direct influence that your work as an engineer has on the local community. So it was a fantastic learning experience for me, dealing with contractors, dealing with massive projects, um, massive budgets, dealing with all sorts of people, dealing with members of the public again that are obviously maybe disgruntled with regards to what you're proposing to do. And it might be a contentious project where you're building or what you're proposing to do. But at the end of the day, when you go back and look at a finished product and see how it fits in with the community and actually seeing people coming off a social housing list that have been on a social housing list for many, many years, it definitely makes you feel very happy about your work. Tell me, Claire, what kind of advice would you have for somebody who's looking to begin their career in the public sector? I, I speak to a lot of people that are starting out and are making decisions in their careers um, after maybe, let's say, doing their undergraduate degree in engineering and um, starting in a local authority. A lot of people probably maybe have mixed views or mixed opinions about what working in a local authority is. It is such a fantastic and varied career. I've worked in local authorities for over 17 years. I did six months in the private sector, and but I always knew I wanted to work in the public sector. So I've been working in councils ever since. 
My advice is that <clears throat> coming in as an undergraduate, you think you know everything in life. We all think at 22 or 23, we know everything <laughs> in life, but you don't. You've got the bare essentials of knowledge in engineering when you graduate from college. You go into local authorities and you are molded into a very well-rounded engineer with a great broad knowledge. And you get to work with a wide variety of people and your people skills become so developed. You get to develop your management skills and your leadership skills then working as well. There's fantastic graduate programs where take you in and you get to work, as I said, across housing, water, wastewater, road design, placemaking, all these different departments that are that are in county council. So I can guarantee you that it will never be a boring career. It's very varied and exciting and it is what you make of it. Every career is what you make of it. Orgel, can I ask you uh, also about uh, projects that you've worked on in the past? Is there any one that you're particularly proud of? I suppose the, the one that I'm currently working on that we're nearly actually out to tender on is uh, the Abbey Field Public Ground Scheme. It's a national road running through the heart of Abbey Field, which the N21 basically connects Kerry to Limerick. So you get an, a significant amount of traffic going through there every day. Uh, I suppose one of the one of the feelings that we do when you work inside the public service is that when you're looking at your towns and villages and such, you want to get speaking with the people so that they don't feel like they're getting left behind. Abbey Field, I think there was a kind of a feeling that they're starting to get a little bit left behind. Now, there's a myriad of issues here in terms of social issues and cultural and economic issues going on in the background, but we were finding that basically a lot of the younger generation was moving out to Abbey Field and moving into the cities or moving abroad, which as you know, we all we all grew wings at one stage and we all left. So and so I suppose some of the buildings, some of the commercial buildings are starting to kind of shut up, shut her up. So I think we're looking at this as kind of an opportunity for Limerick City and County Council to actually put John capital investment into Abbey Field to change it from, we'd say, a, a true road associated with the national road into a place of its own making, a place that I suppose people can stop off and do a little bit of a shop and take a break, charge a car, go for a cup of coffee, kind of peruse the streets, you know. So there's it's a significant investment and it's over the course of nearly 1.5 kilometres, which is basically the, the town itself. What you're saying there about meeting the people, it was amazing to kind of slowly but surely speak with the individuals on the street. We also have like technical advisor groups that we'd say like and the Abbeyfield Community Council. So we actually, there's a lot of engagement with the public that I think people sometimes don't see. And I think that's that's what happens when when you're looking in, when you're looking in and saying like, look, they're, they're, the council is jumping in to plough something into the ground. They haven't spoke to anyone, they haven't inferred, but there has been. There has been significant conversation every step of the way to make sure that they're happy with everything that we're providing. Can I ask, after doing all of that then, what takeaways did you get from talking to people that changed the way you think? Um, I suppose sometimes we forget that like um, I'm looking at these drawings and specifications and I'm looking at kind of the, the work schedules and I suppose engagement consultants and it's it's constant like this is something that's pouring through my head all the time. I suppose in the engineering world what we call it is shaving time. It's when I wake up in the morning and I'm kind of having a quick shave. <laughs> there's There's problems that I'm going through that I'm trying to resolve so that when I rock into work I can say right this is how we're going to face this like meeting people sometimes we do forget that they don't necessarily have the same kind of base of knowledge that we're jumping into it so we're kind of saying like this is what we're doing these are the figures that line up for what we want to do here's the calculations behind everything that we're doing and that's all well and good but not everyone who you meet wants to go through the, the minutiae, who wants to go down to the piecemeal justification and cost estimates that come into all of this. Sometimes they just want to know, like, what is this like for the people who live on this particular street? There's a community of us who are live in 10 houses up this side of the road. We've been a community here for the last 40 years. 
what is what is it you're trying to achieve and how does it help us? Like it's even tiny little things. Like I remember we were looking at a particular section of the road and we put in a pedestrian crossing and we, we, we moved the pedestrian crossing a couple of times and we finally found that we just put outside the pharmacy. And I was going down and I was kind of having a word with the people here about the footpad upgrades and the, the, the different kind of, um, I suppose, landscaping we're doing. And it completely jumped off the page. And every time, oh my God, we've been looking for this pedestrian crossing for 20 years. Oh my God, it's finally here. Oh, thank God the council stepped in and given us pedestrian crossing. And like the pedestrian crossing, I was looking at it from roads, <laughs> you know, a road safety audit point of view. I was looking from a health and safety point of view. And I knew that there was a desire line there. But like, I didn't stop to say like, well, how does this benefit these people on this particular road? Like, and like, they're they're so happy and so engaged to see this. Like, you could have told them you were painting, you know, the street green. They would have accepted it as long as they got the pedestrian crossing to go with it. Like, so I suppose there's times where I do need to step back a small bit from the projects I'm looking at and stop looking at the big calculations. And I suppose just remember that when I meet the people on site, there is just the little bits and pieces, the small improvements that do have a dramatic change to people and are greatly welcomed. Mairead, in your experience, do these stories that uh, Fergal and Claire are sharing uh, resonate with you? Yeah, uh, I've been involved in everything from water to sewerage to roads to community development to conservation to designing play areas. I've had a kind of a long career at this stage. And I suppose uh, the big and the small, and it brings me to mind of when I was an area engineer and had a derelict site in a little village. And a pair of cottages called Weaver's Cottages and they were quite derelict. There was a lot of rubbish around them and everything else. So uh, as opposed to uh, knocking them down, I did a bit of research on them, got a conservation grant, put the two of them back into use and this area beside it, which was also derelict, I also got money from the Department of Housing and built two local authority houses that actually complemented and matched the old style of the weaver's cottages. So I was able to house two families and clean an area and uh, also provide a tourist attraction and tourist amenity in that village and looked at weaving and designing and got a local craftsman to design a spinning wheel and a loom, which is now used. So engineering is so varied. And then you, I can take you then to going to Fingal and being involved in the M50 motorway design and doing the Kulak interchange rehabilitation works and Ratkul Bridge together. So really, I suppose the way I look at it is, is our work is public servants servants of the people making life better everywhere we go by using our innovative design and problem solving skills to actually make life better. And that is in itself is very rewarding. And during the boom times, I was often asked, why didn't I go and get a job and loads of money? And I think the fulfillment of actually using your design, your innovation, problem solving skills to actually do the small things really well and make life very much better or do huge big M50, Rathcool, they're, they're huge jobs. It can be so varied and you're not confined to one thing and community engagement, what the people want, what communities want and how you can deliver it and solve that problem. And sometimes you are there and it's, it's like you're looking at the really the wider thing. So you have at your hands a different uh, service delivery areas that you can access to actually bring a project to completion without having to go back at it again and dig up the road again. It sounds like it is very rewarding and it's coming across very clearly from all of you that it is incredibly rewarding work and you can actually walk around in your localities and go, I helped improve that. 
I, and you can see people enjoying the improvements. But can I ask you just kind of about yourselves and your own careers and promotion? Because, you know, we all want to move up and we want to improve in careers. And I just want to ask you about that. Claire, you've got 17 years experience with local authorities. What does career progression look like in the public sector? Well, there is um, different grades that you sort of work in. So you come in as a graduate. I started as a graduate and then I moved to uh, Offaly County Council as an assistant engineer. Then I moved back to Monaghan County Council as an executive. And then I went to Meath as a senior executive and Loud now senior executive again. So there is a progression, a very clear progression layout there in place in local authorities. You know, you, you come in and you have to be moulded into a, a good local authority engineer. You can't just jump in and expect to be management or leaders from day one. That takes a, a bit of time. You have to cut your teeth. You have to get the knowledge, not just the technical knowledge, the knowledge of dealing with members of the public, dealing with the statutory processes that are in place, dealing with your fellow colleagues. And the way that that works is it, you need to give yourself time but to have the opportunities for career progressions there it's there for the taking for everybody and that goes for any career but in particularly in local authorities as well it's a very clear sort of layout of how you can progress your own career and if you are hungry for it and you're hungry to learn the opportunities are there for you Morgan, you've got a, a bit of a taste of, of both moving up the ladder. Do you find that kind of, you know, more structured way of climbing up the, the various scales is better in, in the public service or did you kind of prefer the more promotion side of things with private? Um, look, I suppose like in the private sector, it, it, it can almost feel aggressive the way you're trying to approach your job. You're trying to get gain as much experience as quickly as possible to kind of, I suppose, establish yourself, make people know who you are. You're, you're always looking for the biggest possible schemes with the biggest names so that you're kind of like when you come back to your company, you're like, OK, I've done two years of this now. I want to be technical director. Bang, I've done 10 years of this now. I want to be director. And you're constantly kind of you're, you're pushing yourself all the time in the public service. When it comes down to it, yes, there, there is the same ticks to say that you have the experience and you've gone through these different projects and you've kind of, I suppose, looked at the different structures involved when it comes to public procurement itself. Now, that's a big thing that you do not do in the private sector. There's a whole host of procurement guidelines and such where you, you, you have to build up a, quite a repertoire of information before you kind of make your way through the myriad of procurement itself. But I suppose it's, it's more transparent in the public sector. I'll be honest with you, like we can talk about the grades we're at, the wages we're at and the steps of where we are at our particular grades. It, it's it's much more open. So like you're not afraid about talking to your wages, to your colleagues. And when you look at the terms of kind of advancing yourself, you know that there's, there's interviews going to come up. You look at what they're looking for in terms of experience. You apply for the jobs. A lot of what we do, particularly once you get to kind of senior exec kind of grade and up, you're doing a true pass anyway, which is a centralized body up in Dublin. So you know that when the, you people are assessing you and looking at you, they are looking at the merits of who you are and your experience and what you've achieved throughout your career. Whereas in the private sector, it can be a little bit more cutthroat in terms of the politics that may be taking place in the background that may not be spoken about as openly as, as we're willing to say. <laughs> ah, interesting. So there's more politics in the private sector than there is in the public sector because the public sector is clearer and more open. Is that what you're saying? Depends how you define politics. So <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there. Then. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> Listen, Mairead, can I ask you, because your career path is slightly different from Claire and, and Fergal, you're now the head of the National Building Control and Market Surveillance Office. How did you go from all of the, the projects and stories you were telling us earlier into that particular position? How did, how did your career lead you there? I suppose I've always followed the projects rather than the career. I've never followed the, the career 
straight line up and I could have done it and I have purposely not. I follow projects. I follow projects that interest me. And if you look at, I was in the private sector and I was a senior resident engineer and senior designer and I took a pay cut for an area engineer. I see myself as an engineer first and foremost and a problem solver and a designer. That's all I ever wanted to be. Even as a child, that's all I have. But nobody ever told me that it was a totally male-orientated profession until I walked into UCD in Terrace for Terrace. <laughs> from actually, uh, from eight years in a non-school with no even male teachers, a girls' school, from five years in a boarding school, girls' boarding school. And I remember walked in a little bit late the first morning in Terrace for Terrace and I was looking up and I'm thinking, this is interesting. I, I, nobody ever, I actually never, I never thought to ask. And I had an uncle, an engineer, never, never dawned on me. I just saw a guy building a bridge one time and he drove a lovely car and I was hooked. <laughs> uh, but in any event, I'm ahead of the National Building Control Office. And how I came there really was pyrite in Fingal was a serious issue. And I was tasked with uh, dealing with people that were suffering the adverse consequences of their floor heaving because of an impurity in the underfloor fill. And meeting people who live in houses, ordinary people, these are not people that bought second houses and the suffering that they were going through actually did affect me. And I came back and I looked at the building control system and I looked at it in, 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 in conjunction with the chief executive at the time and said, actually, we haven't got enough oversight here. We need to do something. It's, it's too much self-regulation and nobody really overseeing it. So that's where I went and had a look at a few of my staff and said, look, at how do we collate this? So we actually designed a bespoke compliance management system a national IT system to collate all of the commencement notices, the fire safety certificates, the disability access certificates into one place, one unit. So the, I followed the job and the job followed me to improve how we do building control and compliance with the requirements of the building regulations in Ireland because nobody had looked at the building regulations in the context of why they were there because regulation in the civilised societies for health and safety, the citizen and protection of the environment and that's what we all do. But the building regulations specifically say health, safety and welfare of people in or about buildings. So everybody was looking at the requirements. Oh, these are technical requirements. Engineers have made them and it's very difficult to build and anybody can build. But every single part of the regulations is for the health or the safety or the welfare of that person living inside the buildings. And we had to kind of re-look at the way we implemented them. So part of my then next couple of years was a national ICT system. So now I'm suddenly gone from a bridge designer to an ICT computer interfaces, so Linux, everything else. We designed up the only fully designed online ICT system for service delivery area in local authorities. So now what we have now is we have oversight of all the designs for every building every home in the country and we can go in there, do risk assessment, get people out to inspect them, pull designers in. If one designer in a county is not uh, living up to what they should be, we have them in the system. We can pick them out of every other county and ask the building control officers, look at, you need to look at this building. Prevent proliferation. We have a long way to go still. But as I said, I've always followed the, the project and what the impact 
And I ask you about what you were saying when, you know, you just saw the guy building the bridge and he had a nice car and you went, I want to be an engineer. And, and you never thought about gender. It never entered your head, which is great. Uh, and then you ended up, as you say, in Air Force Terrace and you're kind of going, mm, hello. Has that changed in your time? Uh, I'd say not really. And I'm now I'm coming back and I've thought about this quite a lot. And I'm looking at it in the context of education for people building houses. The subjects in secondary school are still the same boy-girl subject, the way they make them up, that they were in my day. Even the community schools, they will package domestic science or home economics, as it's called these days, which I believe should be, should be a subject for everybody because people, I, I tell you what, when I was, did engineering, all the guys they couldn't cook, they couldn't do anything. And I couldn't draw because I didn't do mechanical drawing or anything else. So I'd cook them jelly and they'd help me do my mechanical drawing. And they thought I was a genius. You know, you guys look not able to make a <laughs> bit of custard or jelly or something. But anyway, that's an aside. But the thing about it is, is the schools are not doing enough with this boy-girl subject. I had severe difficulties. Even the nuns rang my mother about doing engineering. They wanted me to do primary teaching. So there is still the nursing, the teaching, uh, the civil service aspect to every secondary school in Ireland. And that's very disappointing. Berger, do you want to come in there? Yeah, look, I was just going to say, I work with the Tone Region and Civil Division of Engineers Ireland, and I suppose women in engineering is, is, is a big item on the list. It's always been pushed for the last 50, 20 years. I suppose everything they've done, they've only changed the percentages a couple of points. It's still the same way it was. Like when I was in NYG, I think it was something like 10% of the undergrads were women. And it, like it, I think it's up to fourteen percent now. You know, like we're not talking major changes, even though the culture has changed. I completely agree. There's a big push on now for engineers to get into primary schools and secondary schools, and it, realistically, it's to get into primary schools and to meet them when they're in their formative years, and kind of explain, particularly to the girls, like what what it is like to be on site or what it is like to be a designer and what it is like in the industry. I think we can all agree the simplest definition of an engineer is that we're just problem solvers. We love problems. We love solving them. And like just explain that to the students and why it's open to everyone and not that there's these, I suppose, gender assigned kind of roles or stereotypes associated with engineering that we have to break to actually get young women into engineering. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with Maria. I sort of have the, the same experience as you, Maria, going to an all-female secondary school. And I was very lucky to be able to actually do physics and chemistry together. There was no option for applied maths or engineering or computer science or technical graphics. None of that was available to me. And when I went to college and like that, going into a room of 200 people and 170 of them are males and I hadn't seen a guy in about 15 years, <laughs> um, it's quite a shock to the system. And you feel like you're, I am constantly on the catch up. The first two years in Trinity, we did all engineering, mechanical. We did all subjects that were for all the different types of engineering. And you constantly felt like you were on the catch up all the time because you were in a class with students that had done technical graphics, that had done all these other different subjects that were available to them. But coming from the school that I had, I literally just had the physics and chemistry and maybe a strong background in maths. So definitely looking at in particularly all female secondary schools to see the subject choices that are available and seeing what can be done, having these subjects available to everybody um, and kind of looking at it from a grassroots point of view. I, I take it another step forward, forward. Sorry, I'm interrupting you, am I? I take it another step forward in that we actually all live in houses. Houses need maintenance. Children are not taught how to hammer a nail straight anymore. 
So there's a whole lot of education is for life and to actually be able to live in the world that we are, that, you know, we live in. And we should actually come out with the tools to actually be able to eat, to be able to survive and to be able to live in our houses. So we're not getting that anymore. And I think that's a shame because I, I'm on building sites and I'm in houses and I see the poor young lad that comes out and he can't even hammer the nail straight. And, and, and I'd like to take the nail and then say, could I show you how to do this? And then I look at nice brickwork and I'm thinking that actually would be a lovely job for a boy or a girl because the bricks are light, but they're, they're not exposed to it at an early enough stage. And I think every child loves a brick to play with. Every child loves Lego. I've never met one that doesn't, I've never met a child that doesn't love the box that the stuff comes in, the doll comes in. They want to play with the box. So why are we not bringing that along through the schools? We've kind of headed in the wrong direction, I think. <laughs> I need to go back to teach. I love this because you know, we're straight into what engineering is all about. We have come across a problem. <laughs> we need more women in the industry and why aren't they in there? And Mairead has got some brilliant ideas. But I'm wondering, what do you think uh, for this particular problem, what would you suggest as a fix? Just I'm thinking back of my own experience. Career guidance is also an element in school that I find, like Mairead was saying there, when I mentioned engineering to my career guidance counsellor, it was an older lady. She was a nun. She was like, what is that? She got a prospectus down and she was like going through the pages going, what is engineering? Again, she was pointing me in the direction of nursing or primary school teaching. That seemed to be just what we were meant to do or whatever, you know. So career guidance is very important. You have to recognise that everybody has so many different talents, so many different areas where they are, will flourish in. And I suppose maybe making sure that you've a very strong element of that in the school then as well would be very important. And Fergal, any, any quick fix from yourself? Yeah, like I, like I'm a firm believer in placement programs. Now I know not every student is going to have access to kind of the year or the six months to actually undertake these placement. Like a good example for me is that my family, well, my father and most of my uncles are engineers. My mother is a town planner, so like I've always had this background that I kind of wanted to kind of fit into that role of construction itself. So I wanted to be a civil engineer. I wanted to be a civil engineer since I was seven years old. When I did my first year in college, my father met me uh, after I got back off the bus and said to me, right, Virgil, what is a civil engineer? And I went, I don't know. So after all this, all this ambition, all this passion to become a civil engineer, I actually didn't know what it meant to be one. Because like you said, you can't just read a prospectus or read a summary of what engineering is and go, oh, okay, that's what I want to spend the next 50 years of my life doing. It's, it's something that you have to jump into. So like I took a year out of college and I worked for a construction company, Brian McCarthy. So yes, it was it was tough. It was long hours. It was it was constantly up against in terms of resources, making sure we'd man managed and time and everything else. And I absolutely adored it. I loved it. And it just ignited the fire inside me even more to get back into college, to get through college, to to get out in sight itself. So like for me, if I hadn't done that kind of that taster, there was a potential that all this time I'd spent convincing myself I want to be a civil engineer, would have done four years of a degree, came out of it, hated being on site, hated being working inside an office doing the designs all day and maybe went off and being an accountant. But I would have thought I'd wasted four years of my life. So for me, like I've seen it when I have students inside the offices, if we've undergrads working with us, like I love spending time with them explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it. I love bringing them out in sight so they can actually see it. So like I think a big one for me is that if you can get them for even three months inside a placement program, you can give them amazing perspective on what we actually do and why, why we want people to do it with us. 
Well, I have to say from, from speaking with the three of you on the podcast today, the, the passion that each of you have for what you're doing and all of you have been in the career for, you know, kind of, you're not beginners, shall we say. It's great to see that you still have that passion. I love that. And, and the satisfaction that you're getting from working kind of on the local end, the more public end and being able to walk around, I think it's just, it's amazing. It's been a real eye opener for me and just absolutely brilliant. And then uh, we came up with loads of great ideas to fix a problem. So this has been the perfect engineering podcast as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Mairead Phelan from the National Building Control and Market Surveillance Office. Fergal Timlin with Limerick City and County Council and Claire Hughes from Louth County Council. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dusty. Thank you very much. If you'd like to find out more about Fergal, Mairead and Claire and some of the topics that we talked about today, you'll find notes and link details in the show notes area on your podcast player right now. And of course, you'll find more information and exclusive advanced episodes of our podcast on our website at engineersireland.ie. Our podcast today was produced by dustpod.io for Engineers Ireland. If you'd like more episodes, just click the follow button on your podcast player to get access to all of our past and future shows automatically. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thank you for listening.